Do you love history, drama, documentaries, and original films? Check out the GI Film Festival San Diego. This festival exclusively features films for, by, and about military and veterans. The 2021 event is all virtual and runs May 18th through the 23rd. Highlights include 38 films, 15 online showtimes, post-screening discussions, video-on-demand rentals, and thrilling awards celebration. Catch a film, be inspired, build community. Virtual showtimes, film lineup, and more are at gifilmfestivalsd.org. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large, and we are now ways away from Oscars. It's receding to the weird history of 2020-21, and we've got plenty of other things to talk about. So first off, how are you feeling about this brave new world in which we have another award season around the corner that hasn't quite arrived yet? I'm really happy to uh, be working on a bunch of different stories that have nothing to do with that same old, same old list of of tired old movies that we were covering for so long. So hopefully the podcast will be a little more interesting. By the way, (laughs) part of what we're going to talk about today is the uh, there are so many changes going on in the industry all around us as we emerge from the pandemic. And it's a question. I mean, changes that have already happened, changes that could be staying and permanently. things that, you know, seismic shifts in our industry. So um, some of those stories that we're all working on have to do with that and keeping up with that, you know? Yeah, and in some ways, it's never been a more fascinating moment to be reporting on the industry because it's just, it was already going through so many changes, but now the conversation is acknowledging it in all new kinds of ways. And so we're going to try something a little bit different this week. We've taken reader, uh, listener questions on the podcast before, and we've taken questions at live recordings that we've done. And what we're doing today is we're trying something out with this new social media platform that reached out to us called HiHo. And HiHo, which you can find on the App Store, is like this video question platform where you can sort of post something and people can submit questions to you and you can answer it. So I threw a little thing up there asking, what do people want to know in the podcast? And we got a series of questions that I think we both can agree are fascinating to look at because these are questions that are pretty big picture, but they're very relevant to just the way that people are looking at movies, thinking about movies, and uh, they cover a lot of different areas. So why don't we listen to the first one? I think this one is is, is a good one to start out with because it's not big picture, but it certainly is very relevant to the world that we're in right now and the kind of stories that are being told. So I'm going to I'm going to play it now. I've got a question for you about the future of film and TV. I wanted to know if you have any sense for what genres might really come back. I remember we had a lot of really big 90s comedies. We had the Western. We had huge comic book and superhero franchises in films, which I don't think are going anywhere, Marvel and DC. But in terms of the type of movies that might become really popular, say for the next decade, uh, do you have a sense of what those might be? Okay, so this guy's asking about what genres might really come back. And frankly, I think this one, just the answer kind of writes itself because the musical, which people often like to talk about as sort of this, you know, antiquated concept, seems like it's about to have kind of a moment in 2021 for a couple. I wonder if it's almost like the depression, you know, where, where, you know, we're in the money was the great, you know, hit, hit song uh, from the Busby Berkeley musicals, you know, it was, it was about, 
rich people and excess and and escapism. And I think we're going to see some of that. But I think um, you may be referring to In the Heights as one of the great hits that's about to to come. It's opening night at uh, Tribeca. I saw it last night in a movie screening room on the Warner Brothers lot, which was so cool to drive onto that lot again and go to a, a movie. They were hardly anyone in there and everybody had their own row, basically, and behind them, in front of them and to themselves. Have you gone back to a screening room yet? Oh, I've been, I mean, look, I've been to a lot of screenings. I've been to the movies. I, was, I went to the movie theater twice last weekend around New York, because as you know, well, you know, I've York, done it too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I've been to some some press screenings too, and starting to get in, invites to to press screenings where nobody asks me beforehand if I feel safe going. So you can tell that the climate has shifted. But on the musical front, it's it's fascinating because In the Heights was definitely it's definitely one where some people are looking at it on a link. Some people are going to screenings. But this is a movie that is definitely designed to be a big screen crowd experience. And the fact that it's opening Tribeca ties so well into that narrative. It'll premiere in Washington Heights. I mean, it's it's just ready made to be that comeback kind of movie. And, as a uh, as an old New Yorker, I have to say I really responded because I grew up in it, it isn't that way necessarily now, but when I grew up on 110th Street between Columbus and Amsterdam, it was Puerto Rican Harlem. They were and singing so to the, you. Yeah, the the rhythms, the fire escapes, the bodegas, you know, the whole nine yards really spoke to me. Well, uh, and the it other was, thing is. I mean, look, last year, Netflix had the prom, right? And there were conversations about the value of being able to have a Broadway show on a streaming platform at a particular moment in time. Here you have an extension of that in the sense that In the Heights, when that In the Heights was a hit on Broadway, Lin-Manuel Miranda was not a household name. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who would have loved to see In the Heights after they discovered Hamilton. So it allows you also to interface with kind of the spectacle of that show in a way that's also very cinematic. But it, but it is a, a musical, and, and it is very much in it's tune a, with It's his very style. much a musical. It's a breakout and sing right off the bat, tell, tell the whole story as much as you can with music kind of musical. It's not pretending... There's a they did create a kind of um, framing device, which is an entryway into the musical. But um, but but, you know, um, Anthony Ramos is just wonderful in it. And and uh, there's lots of fresh faces that we may not know as well as we should. And there's just um, an excitement and exuberance um, and and a reality to it, too. The, the stories that are being told are, are some of them quite heartfelt. It's a it's a lot about trying to break into uh it's a little i don't want to i don't want to it, it has a saturday night fever feeling to it in a way of that sense of people wanting to to uh where they feel home in that neighborhood but they also want to break out into the bigger world and be accepted by it well and the other thing is this is not the only musical coming out this year and not the only kind of big celebratory musical experience that we can expect. Lin-Manuel Miranda himself is making his directorial debut with Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix at some point this year. And then at the end of the year, we still have Spielberg's West Side Story, which we got the first you know trailer glimpse of during the Oscars. And those two, those two in the Heights and in West Side Story were already set for a showdown last year. So it's fascinating that that whole template was just sort of carried over yeah, into yeah. 21. 
and I can't wait to see the Spielberg one. I don't, I don't care what anybody says in, in terms of what will in the Heights, you know, suck up all the enthusiasm for something like that. It, they, I think they're, they're probably going to be very different. But also, I always say never discount Spielberg. Just visually, what he can do there is really exciting. So what happened last year during the pandemic was that the films that were not deemed hugely commercial or that didn't play to families. Uh, so so the family movies went straight on streaming for the most part or to PVOD, you know, and, and the, the, uh, the big movies, the ones that were counting on making money at the box office were pushed back. So that's what we're going to get this year. It's an interesting question because this coming year, we will see Fast and Furious again. It's going to be a huge hit, I'm sure. We're going to see, um, you know, Chloe Zhao's The Eternals. You know, there's a bunch of Marvel movies uh, coming. That's not the only one. Um, and there's there's a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, Dune is going to come out finally, the the Denis Villeneuve version of of, uh, of the Frank Herbert novel. So we, we're, we're excited to see all these things that, that we missed. But the real question, that I have is, is, you know, Disney is taking the Pixar movies and putting them right on Disney plus, which even Pixar itself isn't about is, isn't excited about. And it's one thing to do it during the pandemic. It's another thing to say, this is what we're going to do when theaters are opening. Right, wait, wait. We have more questions to get to. Some of them actually touch on these. So should we take the next question here? Which is the, uh, well, let's take the one that says uh, with so many streaming yeah, yeah. platforms, do people, it. yeah, go ahead. You do uh, it. Go ahead. Let's listen to the question because I think it's a, it's a good way to frame this, this conversation. The streaming war is intense. You guys got to talk about that. I think the movie theaters are going to die out. When you got Disney Plus and we got HBO Max straight to TV for 14 99 a month you can't beat that deal instead of paying like arm and a leg just to go to movie theater it's a very interesting point there right like people are saying like it's it's just cheaper to watch this stuff at home right even if something like dune which it, there's a tremendous amount of excitement for at least from the indie wire set from what we can tell people are saying how do you beat the deal or the new pixar movie as as, as you were alluding to i mean it's why spend money to go see that in a movie theater when you know that you'll probably be able to get the gist of this cool movie in your living room. That is a real right. question for people now. There's a whole lot of different things going on and and in this whole equation. And what we're watching is the uh, studios that have streaming platforms all these platforms are competitive with each other. And so there is going to be a lot of really good, great content available at home. I believe that the studios should be looking out for the theaters more than they seem to be. And, and even, and it's interesting because even the studios that don't have streaming platforms are taking advantage of the situation to sell their content to the streaming platforms so that they aren't even putting those movies in theaters. And now some of that is pandemic and some of that is going to shift back to theaters when, when, when things return. I argue that Godzilla versus Kong 
could not be appreciated. As far as I could tell, the people who didn't see it in a theater didn't see what the big whoop was. To experience it, that movie in a movie theater was to see scale and clarity and scope on it on this extreme. The thing you forget when you've been away from the movies and you return to them is this immersive experience where you just let go of all your cares and woes and you're there and there's nothing else to think about and you can just experience it. And these big movies give you something you cannot get on the home screen. Well, I would I would add to that. I mean, I, I agree that a bad movie like the one you just mentioned certainly <laughs> being a big screen. Spec- I mean, let's be honest. I, I talked to people. Somebody, it I works, to somebody man. It's like, <laughs> I'm not saying it's they, an A-list critics picture, but it works no, in a movie it's, theater. It's like a D minus anything picture. No, but it's not. Like, I, I really was disappointed by it in, in a lot of ways, except for the big battle scene and, and did see it on a small screen and I'm sure would have enjoyed some aspect of it just viscerally. I spoke to somebody who said they were they were deeply under the influence in the theatrical experience and could not have imagined it any other way. And, and that sounded right to me in a hypothetical circumstance I didn't experience myself. But I will also say it's not just that kind of experience that benefits. I mean, I saw the new Roy Anderson movie at Film Forum on Friday. Of course you did. I mean, it was great. And I ran into people I knew in the lobby and it was, you know, packed to the capacity they could they could have, which was 40 something people. I don't really know. But Roy Anderson, this amazing filmmaker who every shot is this like beautiful tableau. He like he films it in studio, but it's often these like really remarkable kind of graphic juxtapositions of people in, in like dramatic landscapes or sort of standing in the middle of nowhere it's got this deadpan quality to it but it's like even at 70 odd minutes this movie on a small screen would seem kind of slow and confusing and just sort of hard to sit through what i found in the theatrical experience is that it's a it's just a work of art the way that you would look at a painting on the wall i could pull up you know starry night on my phone anytime but I'm going to be way more entranced by that image on the wall at MoMA. There's just something that happens there, a certain kind of cultural exchange. And that's also something that I think the theater does for certain kinds of filmmaking. And that's, that's an example of that too. And that's something that I think also people need to understand. It's the art houses and the platform they create for a certain kind of cinema is another reason why movie going, I think will continue to survive and thrive, even if the multiplex part of it is, is less relevant. Um, Eric, the multiplex part of it is relevant to a, millions of Americans. Out I there know. Who go to I the know. movies it's every less year. Relevant to you, a lot of people. go to Film Forum, and God bless you. That's fine. But that actually, that art, that art house universe in exhibition is the one I'm most worried about. Well, surviving. but it hasn't it always been. A, I mean, when was the last time that the art houses were thriving? It's it's tough to make these things work. But the reality is that there is still art that's being created that deserves that kind of exhibition. That's true, that's but it doesn't mean that it's going to be there for them. I mean, getting well, my perception a... right now is that getting a theatrical release was difficult before. Yeah, it's going absolutely. to be way more difficult it's now. It's a struggle. It'll be and, a struggle. And the, you know, some of these movies that you're looking at, 
have, I don't know about that specific one with the, when they made their deal or made their distribution arrangement or whatever, but a lot of movies that would have gotten distribution distribution in theaters may not get it now. And well, it's a Magnolia you know, release day and date, right? So you can still have the experience on VOD and the business. That's why. It, that's why. Right? That's why. So the question yep. is, how does does the film form model somehow wind up fitting into that equation in a way that sustains film form? Well, maybe not, but they have benefactors. You're I mean, in New York. Just, You're in New York. And model, hopefully, right? hopefully there's going to be, I'm not worried that they're not going to be any art houses no, left is, in New it's, York, it's but there are a lot fragile. of places around the country where right. it's extremely fragile. Even right. Alamo is losing and they were a relatively robust, you know, concern. They're losing theaters and, and landmark is losing theaters there. The, these are the indie chains that you would hope would be able to, to sustain themselves. And they're, they're challenged. Um, but the genres coming back, Back and the HBO Max um, streaming wars thing, I just think there's going to be certain big movies that have to be seen in theaters. And what worries me is this, the, the economics and the, the structure of everything that we are looking at right now, the way the studios are behaving, allowing all of these movie theaters to go out of business by not giving them enough product. Right. It's like the market forces are dictating what's going to happen as opposed to the cultural ones, as opposed to what people really need and want. There's going to be, we predicted this, there's going to be a, a loss of a certain number of movie theaters yeah. and the strong will survive. And you could also argue that it the streamers definitely have the upper hand in terms of not just the content, but determining the future of movie theaters. I mean, I think it's fascinating that Netflix is putting Army of the Dead into a bunch of movies. I was just going to bring that up right? because that's a like, real release in Cinemark yeah, theater chains yeah. in a wide release, you know, weeks ahead of, of the, of the opening. And the reason for that is that they paid a lot of money for it and it's an expensive movie and they mm -hmm. might actually make some money. Yeah. This is interesting because Cinemark is one of the three top theater chains and they have been anti-Netflix all this time, not Cinemark. Cinemark is the one that is the most likely to survive. It's the one that's the smartest and the most adept, the best marketing. And mm. they are um, they are actually getting in bed with Netflix and have been. They've been experimenting with them before, but this is the first big wide release. It's a big deal. All right, let's take another question. My question is now that there is so many streaming platforms, do you think that people actually authentically receive the art and the stories like they used to when it wasn't as many options? I guess the question is, do people give the content and stories enough time to set in, like to really affect them before they just go on to watching the next one? Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Interesting. Well, what do you think? I worry i was worried about this during the oscar season i i worry about these these stories of people like falling asleep on nomadland and and watching it the next night and i know i did that not with nomadland but with some not. other things yeah um so i think that that you know people made jokes about trying to watch the irishman which is a very long movie in one sitting so I don't think it's good for movies to be watched this way at all. I think series are easier to consume 
one hour at a time, break them up. Fine. That's the way they're structured. That's the way they're supposed to be seen. Movies are not supposed to be seen that way. And you can't duplicate even no matter how good your, your um, uh, setup is and how good the sound and the image and the size of the screen and, and your blackout deal, you, you're, you're not going to be able to discipline yourself necessarily not to leave the room and, and do something else. I have a really good example of something that speaks to this concern that's recent, which is Underground Railroad. I had a wonderful, wonderful, it was a really powerful experience watching this show, all 10 episodes, watched a lot of it all at once and, and finished it over the course of, I would say, four or five days, something like that. And it's all coming out on Amazon all at once. But if you look at the reviews, they all kind of agree that as, as, scrumptious and involving and extraordinary as this is. I mean, Barry Jenkins and company that what they've done in their previous films continues here. Brattel's score lacks in cinematography. It's just an incredible piece of storytelling, but it's a lot over the course of 10 hours and it's not designed for a binging experience. Amazon viewers see 10 episodes of something and a lot of times they're, they're going to go through maybe three, four or five of them. That's just not what it should. I mean, in that case, that show would be very well um, uh, set up to be sort of partitioned out, say two, three episodes at a time, something like that. Give the viewers that kind of context to experience it, maybe. But we're in a very confusing moment in terms of how things are released and, and just putting things up all at once isn't necessarily the answer. But if you put things up all at once, people assume that they can kind of decide at what pace they watch things and it's just a fascinating moment in terms of how we experience storytelling because of that. So I'm sure that we're going to see a lot of different, both in TV and film, a lot of different ways of streamers trying to understand, well, what is the best way to put this story out into the world? Because if you just put a 90 or 120 minute movie out there, it should be pretty clear that you're going to watch that and that will be the time you allocate for it. But if you have a three part something or a 10 part something like Underground Railroad, it's going to be a different kind of story. So, so watch this space. I think that's a really interesting question um, for what people should do. You know, I personally can't binge, you know, three or four movies in a row. I don't, I just, I need, I, I, I feel like it's, it's a bad process for, for, you know, interacting. And yet that's people. what we do at film festivals, mm -hmm. which is part of the option. attraction. Yeah. And, uh, and we are thinking about possibly going to Cannes. I mean, it's yeah. an option. It's good point. If, if we're that's allowed. A, so we'll go. It's a kind of binge experience, I suppose, because the thing is like, if you're at a film festival and you're running around going to the, these different kinds of things, you have to sort of train your mind to get to that point where you realize like these two things don't actually go together, but I, but I have to process them that way. You know, it's like you're, you're, you're forcing yourself to be ahead of, ahead of what your instinct is to be, which is to kind of put it all together as one experience. But I can't wait to do that with you. It can. So, so I hope we get to do it. I hope we do too. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So we have one last one. That's kind of a weird one. Why don't, why don't we close with, with that one? Is anybody working on VR movie releases? Okay, VR movie releases. <laughs> this Man, is for you, you Eric. <laughs> You're the I, VR monster. <laughs> I love I love talking about virtual reality and just emerging media in general as a, a new, you know, anything new in terms of how stories are told with moving images is is worth paying attention to because every generation processes them differently, right? There's a generation coming up now that doesn't make the same kind of distinctions between 
video games and TikTok and a feature length movie and a TV series. And so I do think it's worth looking at something like virtual reality, which is a technology that's actually been around for a long time and is getting more and more consumer friendly as a platform for a kind of storytelling. But it it's important to understand that VR filmmaking is probably not the direction that it's going to go because it's a different kind of thing. I mean, I know you've put the headset on before. People have tried it oh, out I've, at festivals. I'm, yeah, I've tried meeting. it. Here, it, it, I have to say some of my early experiments with it were so unpleasant and unsettling and vertigo-inducing <laughs> that um, I, I kind of turned hard. away from it. But in, in more recent years, I, I do think it works very well with the short form. And, uh, and in, in when I have the opportunity to actually sample a number of different high-level uh, VR films in, in a festival context or, or in a special space... Uh, certainly the Inuritu was an extraordinary experience um, yeah. at, at the and museum. There's some great um, 360 yeah. video work being done by documentary filmmakers. I saw one that was shot aboard the uh, International Space Station that was at South by Southwest from a company called Felix and Paul that does a lot of that stuff. They did one with the Obamas in the White House. And I think it's, it's, it's just kind of getting started in, with that kind of work. But, but the there's thing- so much computer capacity that yeah. is required it is it's, so it's expensive hard. and it is so I got a lot int- of cords in my house intense. now yeah that i don't think there's a commercial um, use for it, except as a marketing device. Well, you know, you, if you go to CinemaCon, they they always have some VR. It, it's certainly marketing impressive thing. to see that stuff. But yeah. I will I will uh, disagree with you in one key way. Uh, it comes down to what John Favreau did on The Lion King, which is VR as a filmmaking tool. Spielberg also did it to some extent with Ready Player One. And in essence, if you're working with some kind of virtual landscape you can now put on a a VR headset, scout your virtual location, and then put a tracker on your camera that creates the same camera in virtual reality. So you move the camera around a green screen or whatever, and you're moving it in virtual reality. So VR filmmaking is tremendously fascinating in terms of this new frontier. And when that becomes more consumer friendly, so indie no. filmmakers can do that. That's Cameron, Favreau, Rob Legato, all, you know, the LDI, the, the screens, all that. Yeah. But, but that's not what this guy's asking. He's asking if no, there's going to be some kind of VR yeah. pro filmmaking that we're going to see either in television or, or they they have talked about creating the headsets so that you could watch something like that in 3D or some space in your you home. Can watch, I don't know I mean, how that also, would work. You could put a headset on and I mean, the early days of the pandemic. You loved having your little avatar experience. <laughs> I mean, I know the social aspect of it is amazing. But that you, interests me. There yeah. is an app yeah. called Big Screen that, that I think is still technically in beta where you can watch movies with an audience in VR and it's it's cool. The thing is they're a little heavy. The battery power is limited to maybe two hours at most. So it's just not quite ideal for like watching a feature film experience. It's more a platform for some sort of interactive kind of thing. So yeah, I'm gonna get yeah. you to I'm gonna get you one in and we'll uh, we'll hang uh, out. No, I'm I'm game. I'm totally game. I'm not there. I'm not willing to shell out my hard earned bucks yet. That's all. One step at a time. Well this was fun. Um, it's certainly refreshing to not think about the ridiculous. Thank God. Of Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I'm you, sure uh, you're going to have Tribeca around the corner, I know, right? I know. Yeah. So next week we'll have all kinds of stuff to anticipate on that front. Hopefully some canned news as well. And uh, I hope you're, you're getting some, some normal sleep hours back in because you're going to need them. See you soon. Okay. Talk Bye. to you later.